Seven miles out to sea off the Kerry coast and into the first skirmishes of the Atlantic. A thousand years, give or take, since the Vikings kidnapped the abbot of the monastery on Skellig Michael. There's been another audacious capture. And tonight, a solitary lighthouse keeper has lost his bishop. But this time it's only a chess piece lost in a game played long distance against another lighthouse keeper on the Aran Islands, connected via the medium frequency radio set. Over. There were always longers on the lighthouse at Skellig Michael, even before its great beam became automated. Each night there was the daisy chain of radio calls to the lights around the coast. From the Bailey in Hoth via the Tusker, the Mizzen and the Fastnet, Fastnet in its turn calling Skellig, until the circle of all clears was complete. But when that was done, the radio was free to continue that immortal Skelligs v. Aaron chess game. And when the previous evening had seen your bishop and even your queen kicked mightily about, there might for once have been a faint dread when you heard the crackly words Skellig's calling Later, and renowned sound recorder Chris Watson is talking to a packed house at the Skibbereen Arts Festival. Abistruri Church is bristling with a surround sound system designed to play the sounds that Chris has captured that year on adventures that have taken him to the North and South Poles. But one location has proved beyond reach Skellig Michael. So I thought I must, you know, I can bring sounds from either end of the planet to Skibbereen for the festival, but I can't bring sounds from an island just up the road because we couldn't get there. Chris tells the crowd about how his own endless chess game with Skellig began, with his teenage ear pressed to a transistor, bewitched by a programme about a rock of an island off the coast of Kerry. This description of scrambling up the rough stone steps and then trying to ascend these almost vertical stairs, as some of you might have experienced, uh, up this conical island and finally reaching the summit to this strange place that had been inhabited in the 6th century by monks who had built these bizarre beehive cells. Reaching into his archive, Chris plays the audience some of his recordings that conjure up Skellig, like the rumbling undersea currents of the North Atlantic, the ones that have just swollen up and cancelled the trip we all planned to make. And these are the sounds of deep ocean currents, the sound of waves effectively underwater, but waves that could well have started on the coast of Newfoundland or Maine or New England days or even weeks previously and have crossed the North Atlantic to break and swirl around the rocks of the islands where you know, we were hoping to go and record. This is the sound that prevented us getting there as well. This is the barrier, the ocean, to landing on the island and that I still didn't have the opportunity of recording the sounds that, that we're hoping to achieve when we eventually get there, and I'm sure we will, won't we, Kevin? <laughs> someday, some year, um, in the future sometime.
That evening, Chris put his first foot on Skellig's stairway, the stone steps that wind up around the edge of the rock like some granite trimming from the sea all the way to the beehive huts at the monastery high in the clouds. Before we climb that ancient staircase, let's row back a little to those undersea ocean currents, because the same currents that keep you away from Skellig might choose to lead you there. Early Christian monks were keen believers that Christ was their co-pilot. They were in the habit of resting their oars, throwing them away even, and letting the Lord and the swell decide the destination. They believed in floating, wandering, a peregrinatio that brought them ever closer to their god. Archaeologist Michael Gibbons has traced the tidal movements of those early Christian monks. Well, sometime in the 5th, 6th century, we're not sure, some powerful abbot of a monastery in West Kerry on Valencia or Beganish in Church Island said, this world, you know, isn't difficult enough for us. That mountain out there in the ocean that's where we're next headed this will be the ultimate prayer to sail out here carve our own the ultimate monastery for the love of god it will be a beacon for christians from now for the next thousand years all our life's work will be involved in carving it there'll be great dangers involved the seas will sweep us off it from time to time but it will be our ultimate challenge. Which of you monks here are prepared for this challenge? So that would have been a wonderful conversation sitting on Bray Head overlooking Port McGee where you have this wonderful complex of early Christian clones with crosses carved in them. It was almost like their, this is their supply monastery as they look to the west for the next great Christian project which is the conquering of Skellig Vahil or whatever its name was in pre-Christian times because clearly it would have had an ancient name and would have been a powerful place. Remember the Greek geographers of Alexandria who are drawing Ptolemy's map know the shape of Ireland. So these headland areas would have been familiar, at least among the merchant classes. So going to that ultimate island peak, that island holy mountain, and it may well have been holy in pre-Christian times, that would have been a, a marvellous conversation to be sitting in on, looking across St. Finian's Bay saying, now we're going. And for the next several centuries, we will be sending monks here to and we'll create a world and we'll create the most extraordinary monastery in Western Christendom. And the early Christians are very conscious of heavenly places and going to the edge of the world. And the edge of the world is where you'll experience God, but it's also where you'll experience the devil. So some monasteries are found in these extreme locations. They're like the early warring systems for this newly Christianized country. The devil is a real presence in the medieval mind. The people who are now Christian needs protection from the devil. Given the opportunity, he will be in like a shot. So the devil is coming at you from the blind side, from the four corners of the world. And Ireland is at the edge of the world, the known world at the time. So monasteries get established where you have groups of men and women that are praying, not just for themselves, but for the wider Christian world. You have a constellation of these wonderful island monasteries all the way along the western fringes of Ireland. Ducal, famous Irish 8th century geographer, records Irish monks in Iceland. So there's a whole chain of these Irish monasteries all through up the Northern Isles into the North Atlantic as the frontier of the Christian world, keeping the devil at bay. Skelligs has this wonderful fort on the summit. So the fortress of Skellig Michael, Skellig Michael is built, the main monastic complex, is built within this double ramparted stone fort edging this spectacular cliff. And the whole island then is ribbed with terraces and staircases ever moving upwards and onwards to the two high peaks. You have a main monastery and then you have a later oratory complex on the south peak in this extraordinary eerie like 
the location. As it happens, fighting off the devil is damned hungry work. Bad news for the majority of the rock's inhabitants. Daphne Potion-Mould, wonderful scholar, she's now 90, published this wonderful article, which is called The Fat Monks of the Skelligs. And in it, she argues that rather than these aesthetic, thin, spindly monks wandering around this island in the rock, these were plump monks, because at every hand they had a puffin for dinner. They were in the centre of the richest little ecological niche on the planet, and they were feasting on these birds. Since the abandonment of the island, and we don't know when that took place, as a permanent population of monks who were living off the fruits of the sea and the fruits of the air, the birds, there's probably way more birds on the Skelligs now than there ever has been because these would have been harvested. And, of course, we know from Skellig, little Skellig, Skellig Bjog, that the people of Kirkagrina to the north of Dingle and the people of Ivroch fought over these harvests of seabirds. So one of the reasons these, mon- these island monasteries may well have been settled in ancient times, even pre-Christian, is they're harvesting these vast bird colonies that are out there. So that very loud, wonderful noise as you arrive in May or June or into July of the nesting birds and that cacophony of wonderful crashing sounds. Uh, it might have been a little bit quieter place back then. These days the birds get a little more respect and we've arrived to capture nothing more than their vocal performances. Skellig is a great place to do that, a homeland of squawks and caws, a seabird city with a very vocal reception committee massed at its entrance, the East Landing. This is Blind Man's Cove and this is the landing stage, so this is the first sight or the first step and the first real sounds of Skellig Michael to anybody who lands here, any visitor, this is the place where people come ashore being greeted by these vertical cliffs that I'm in front of now, which, craning my neck up, go 100 metres straight up. There's this beautiful inlet into a sea cave. And what I really want to record are these beautiful comings and goings of kittiwakes onomatopoeic seabirds which are nesting in this almost parabolic curve of the cliff and they're just perched calling there perched on these tiny terrifying looking narrow ledges with a very basic nest of dried grasses and weeds, seaweeds probably and rather than try and record one kittiwake what I really want to get is this coming and going, this passage that we can hear over our heads now. It's almost a cathedral-like acoustic, and this is the first audible greeting that visitors get when they land, so it's in many ways, it's a, a memorable spot. reminded when I hear kitty wakes that birds listen as well as call and they seem to use the acoustic of the cliffs to reverberate and echo the calls and and they call and then wait and quite often you hear the reverberation the coloration of the sound reflecting back off these vertical black rocks and they have quite a plaintive character to the voices Kittiwakes, onomatopoeic, because they say kittiwake, kittiwake. 
visitors to Skellig have a habit of finding themselves in conversation with the birds. The writer Michael Kirby from back on the mainland at Ballin Skelligs found fellow poets in the seabirds around the islands. He wrote, The black guillemots and razorbills calling in shrill voice, singing or composing poems, diving and reappearing from the spume, white forth their bills laden with silver sprat. And Chris too was impressed by the orcs. Guillemots nest in these dense social groups. They cram together in a real sort of seabird city sense, shoulder to shoulder on these tiny ledges. And they don't even make a nest. They have these conical eggs which roll around dangerously close to the edge of these ledges but, but roll in a circle and don't actually or, or very often fall off the edge. But they're constantly arguing and clamouring with their neighbours and fighting and jostling for space. But in doing so, they produce these really beautiful waves of rolling laughter. There's quite often another orc in amongst the guillemots, but far less conspicuous because these are razorbills, and these tend to nest in much smaller social groups and quite often below crevices or, or holes in rocks. And razorbills seem to use their immediate acoustics of the crevices and holes in which they nest and vocalise to produce this short reverberant call. And there's one bird, one species of orc, which I think many people come to Skellig Michael just to see and sometimes hear. And it's the one bird that most people can identify, the puffin, the Atlantic puffin. And they're here in season on Skellig Michael in their thousands, probably tens of thousands. A small black and white sort of dumpy looking bird with a beautifully colorful bill. And they don't use the rocky ledges or holes to nest in. They prefer the steep-sided grassy slopes which surround Skellig Michael and they make holes in these grassy knolls and nest deep inside, a metre or so inside in burrows. But because they've nested there for so long and in such large numbers, they've created this incredible honeycomb pattern of holes and burrows around the middle part of the island and a microphone down inside one of these burrows picks up all this honeycomb effect of birds calling and answering to each other from below the surface and within their burrows with this lovely deep rolling motorbike droning sound which again they call and listen for a reply from their neighbour. You get some idea of just how long the puffins have been working at making their tracks and paths and tunnels when you see the ground they had to work with. On the island's lighthouse road we met boatman author Des Lavelle from lighthouse keeping stock, but also something of an expert on the rock on which we stand. In terms of geology, what, what are the rocks that we're standing on? Nothing terribly exciting or are magical, wonderful. They are old Devonian sandstone, very old stuff, maybe 400 million years old, but it's the same stuff that goes right the way through the McGillicuddy Reeks right into the middle of County Kerry. 
tough stone, not like ordinary sandstone. This is tough stuff, and it's been slugging it out with the Atlantic just for, forever. And still, it does yield at times, because only in this past year or so, we have a rock fall over in small skellies where quite a good lump of what looked like solid rock has tumbled into the sea. The, the, the ocean winds in the long run, even if it does take a thousand years or more. And you've also done uh, some exploring of the underwater environment of Skellig Michael. I suppose as a pioneer almost, uh, because that we started diving here back in 1966 when it was almost witchcraft. Uh, of course, always when you're diving, there's always this image of a wreck somewhere in the, in the, in the, in the bottom. And we have a wreck here too. There's a wreck uh, at the small skelligs. We like to call it the wreck of the Lady Nelson. And this would have been a cargo of wine that was wrecked before 1800 even. Uh, not much to be seen today. Some cannons, a couple of anchors. There's a, quite a bit of storytelling about that or folklore. Maybe it's fact now that there was quite an argument on board the ship as she was approaching the Irish coast, coming from Portugal, I believe, because the the mate had been having some friendly affairs with the captain's wife, and there was some disagreement as to the navigation as a result of that, and as a result of that, the ship hit the small skelligs, and the remains of it lie there today, some of it in 16 metres, more of it in quite, quite deep parts, like maybe 30. I, I liked a bit of mystery, and, well, if there's a mystery, you can prove it's right or wrong. This is where I, where I say welcome to Small Skellies. We're just trot an hour out from Valencia's Bray Head, and we've slid comfortably into the shelter of Small Skellies on the east side, and we hear the familiar sound of gannets everywhere. I might hear it 50 times a year, 60 times a year. Richard, you'll see it a few times every year from the air. Penny, tell me about it yourself. What do you reckon? The small skellig, it's one of the most impressive things you could see. It always reminds me of a cathedral, it's like a gothic cathedral with the arches and buttresses. And then the pure cacophony of the gannets. You know, they're on some sort of a thermal up at the top of the cliff and little tiny movements of the wings and tails to keep them steady. They seem to be searching for a landing place because I think they all have their own allotted spots and uh, there can be mayhem if they go to the wrong place. It's overwhelming, it's overwhelming visually, it's overwhelmingly hourly, and sometimes the smell can be overwhelming too. <laughs> you mentioned a cacophony, that's a kind of a horrible sound. I think this is music. Well, that's, that's true, <laughs> that's true, yeah. It's, it's harmonious dissonance. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, one good storm and one good storm of rain and to be all cleaned down yeah, at the end of the year. Yeah. The Guinness will be away for their three months holidays. They'll be gone from November, say, until February again. And then back they come. Spending winter down off the coast of Africa. Some of the Mediterranean and, uh, inside Gibraltar and some in Biscay. And the, old, the adults will be back first. And they'll occupy the nesting places. And then the more juvenile ones, the three-year-olds and the two-year-olds and the one-year-olds, they'll wander along later. Back on dry, if rocky ground, armed with a microphone and a positive attitude, Chris climbed the stone steps of Skellig Michael. Oh, we're going to continue up these very steep, winding stone steps that eventually lead to the monastery. And although all the day visitors gone back to the 
landing stage and back to the mainland. In front of me, this stairwell's not occupied by people, but by dozens and dozens of puffins who've come out to browse and loaf around these steep green banks and find really convenient perches on these stone steps. I'm going to have to pick my way through them as well as climbing carefully up these stairs because the puffins can just ease out of my way and drift off to the edge of the cliff and just sail into the air quite gracefully, which of course I can't do and I'm fully intending to keep my feet on the ground and just take it easy up this stairway. Carefully edging these puffins out. Certainly really inquisitive. We're getting these really fabulous and very expansive views of the Atlantic, the triangular peaks, guano capped peaks of Little Skellig where the gannetry is and the hazy mainland which is rapidly disappearing in some low cloud. But I need to concentrate on where my boots are going on these steps and climb. Oh wow. <laughs> Puffin just skated out right across my boots. Beautifully verdant green slopes with the green leaves of campion remaining. Really dense, soft carpet. And etched through them are these ancient stairs reaching up to the rocks of the monastery and towards the heavens. I need to keep going. now with a very steep stairway that almost looks like a portal into this pale grey horizon. Here it goes. Serious conditions. I'm up here 
Well, I've stopped for some respite in an area called the Saddle, which is a narrow part bridging the island between the north and south peaks of Skelleg Michael. And the puffins are all just hanging in the air right in front of me now, although, of course, they're a few hundred feet above sea level. Anyway, here's a track in the middle of the saddle with the ocean either side and very strong winds blowing between this narrow gap. My name is Paddy Bush and I'm a writer. Uh, I'm going to read a poem called Climbing the Eye of the Needle, South Peak. And the South Peak is a very precipitous place. I had been terrified to go there for 20 years. I uh, got very brave because I knew there were safety ropes attached and um, finally climbed it, which was the most marvellous experience. Climbing the Eye of the Needle, South Peak, for Alan Hayden. The needle's eye, already well threaded with safety ropes, opened like a sleeve above us. Could I pull myself through, draw the world inside out and discover the light beyond, like that long ago child daring the darkness of his huge pullover? The sea, dizzily beneath us, heaved disbelief. Here was the hand over hand over foothold to God I'd written achingly about. Now I recall only the coming up and out, the sunlit terrace trembling all over in the windy brightness, and my whole self slipping easily through, some old saint's arm giving its reliquary the slip punching the air with delight. Others had more troubling visits to Skellig Michael. It was another world in 1929 when a Cambridge archaeologist called Thomas Lethbridge visited Skellig. And we know that because when Lethbridge went to the island, he climbed the treacherous steps to the summit, looked over the edge, and seeing some nettles, a cognoscentis tell for an ancient rubbish dump, instantly decided to scramble down the hundred-foot cliff. Well, it turned out that was the least strange part of Lethbridge's day on Skellig, a sunny June 24th of 1929. Halfway down the cliff, Lethbridge had a strange sensation. There was a presence beside him, an unfriendly who wanted to push him off the cliff and into the waters below. It was an inexplicable sensation, so he climbed back up and thought himself a coward for doing so. But Skellig's presences weren't finished with him yet. Lethbridge, an old-school archaeologist who went on to publish a small library of books on the science of ESP, wondered if perhaps the island's magnetic resonances were the cause, or the unstill wraiths of the seagoing dead he'd met before on his travels. As he gingerly descended from the beehive huts to the place they call Christ's Saddle, Without a sound and with no apparent feeling, I was suddenly flung on my face on the grass. There was no gust of wind, no person, no animal, nothing. I was not in the least bit hurt, but it was an unpleasant surprise. That was too much for Lethbridge, and soon he was on the boat home. 
It wasn't until some years later, after the Second War, that Lethbridge found an answer. Skellig Michael, like any location in a decent horror movie, had a hidden past. Skellig, Lethbridge gradually pieced together, was an ancient shrine to Lou, or Lucifer, as he was known in classical civilizations. The rebranded dedication to St. Michael was just part of a clerical cover-up of older, stranger stories. It was clear to Lethbridge, Skellig was the home of the devil, a place where even on a day that was clear and blue, a lone walker might cross dark forces on that most heavenwards of staircases. In his rush to go home, Lethbridge turned down an invitation from the lighthouse keeper to spend the night. And that was a mistake, at least if that lighthouse keeper was as good a storyteller as the incumbent Richard Foran, a keeper of the sound as well as the light of Skellig, and a keeper of the rockets fired when fog set in. First of all, of course, when fog came in, the visibility dropped, so your light was reduced. So then they had a system of, of sound. So they, they devised uh, diphones or, or rockets. So the diphone was, was air, compressed air, driven to a trumpet. That time navigation wasn't great. It was easy for a ship to be maybe 10 miles off course when she approached land, you know. So the distinguished will say the skellics from the bull rock, they put rockets on the skellics. And the distinguished loop head from the tears, they put rockets on the loop head. And for the same effect, really, it was a sound. It was a warning sound that you were approaching land, you know. So there was rockets here. You put the detonator in, they were hauled up on a jib, and they were pressed the button onto a battery, and they exploded above your head. And that went off. Every three minutes they went off. If you look at the old charts, you'll see the character of the light. F-15 would be down now for Skellig's. Three flashes every 15 seconds. There'd be three by 15 written on the chart. And the same way there would be sound, whatever that would be, two minutes or three minutes to sound. So that was written on your chart. So you looked at your chart, oh, yeah, that's, that's the Skellig's that's firing, you know. Oh, yeah, there was a, there was a cable there one time. He was, he was actually born here. And... and uh, I won't mention his name, but he, but he, he became an lighthouse keeper. And the, the troubles in the 1920s, he was stationed in the old Hedekin Sail. The, the RIC raided the place and, and they uh, discovered he was giving the detonators to the IRA. They had much interest in the rockets, but they certainly had on the detonators. So he was charged with that, and Irish lights, of course, were disgusted with this. Can you imagine the uproar that one of their, their keepers was giving the IRA detonators? So he was called up to Dublin. And, and at that time, the office was in, in the Lear Street, the corner of O'Connell Bridge there. And the, the inspector at the time used to go every day for his lunch to the, to the Gresham. And he was on his way over for his lunch and on the day of the inquiry, and two guys came up alongside him, and one stuck a gun into his ribs and said, if you sack the keeper at, at, at two, you're dead at five. So he duly went back to his office, and when the, the keeper arrived up, and he sat in a chair outside the boardroom, waiting to be called in. The door barely opened. A voice from inside said, go back to your station. <laughs> that was the end of, of the, of the dead news. Normally, when it's lights out at the lighthouse, it's time for bed. But tonight, the show is only beginning. When darkness finally covers Skellig Rock, we start our climb to the monastery to hear a special concert from the storm petrels, the tiny birds that swarm around the stonework, filling the darkness on the peak with unearthly sounds. Early in the evening, a single storm petrel makes its call. Then a little later, a multitude materialises.
just hearing the spaces filling up, those calls and responses from birds within the stonework and returning birds, finding where the mates are. They can identify their partner by the call. It's pattern recognition. They're navigating entirely by sound. It's not like bats. I don't think it's like bats. It's not echolocation. It's acoustic in the same way that we're hearing it. But it's still remarkable. The petrels and the Manx shearwaters won't come in while it's bright. That's right, yeah. The, um, the big, basically, because they'll get predated, they get attacked by the gulls. <laughs> Just before the nighttime cloud cover came, you could see the, the shadows and, um, of, and silhouettes of gulls appearing on the horizon and perching sort of menacingly on top of those beehive cells. And they knew what was going to happen shortly after as we realised when we started to hear it that the shearwaters and petrels start to come in and the gulls will predate them. Because these storm petrels are tiny birds. The best nights to come in are like this. Light is very low and so they can sneak in, hopefully undetected. right in the centre of that monastery area by some of the BR cells and we're what about 50 metres away now running cable back down the track so we're not influencing or disturbing what's around the microphones there's no light, artificial light in there so the birds are behaving normally but they're coming right around the, those microphones and it really is, I mean I love this aspect of working remotely because you really get this sense of you're tuning into another world These collisions hitting the sides of the windshield. The, the walls that the monks have built are dry stone walls, rock upon rock, which has actually created loads of bedding sites for the petrels. No, it's perfect, yeah. I mean, it's to say these pockets are ideal nesting places and I'm sure they do something to the acoustic as well they amplify the acoustic so again it's like poorly insulated tower block living in cities you can hear all your neighbours adjacent to you but what we've got now is this amazing sort of nocturnal chorus of sounds there's hundreds, thousands of these birds all around us and you can hear the airs full of these sounds it's quite an uneasy environment. I mean, we're perched on this vertiginous rock out of somewhere in the Atlantic in almost total darkness with some of the strangest sounds you'll ever hear in Western Europe all around us. And, and no lights and no idea of where the path is until we put our head torches on. <laughs> I'm glad you're here and you should go first when we go back down. <laughs> I think we're now hearing another bird coming in as well because we, in the kind of half-light we heard quite, quite definitely predominantly petrels but now there's another call. Right on cue, Manx Shearwaters, yeah that. What an amazing sound in the darkness, that quite witch-like cackling sound. And they're calling in flight, unlike the storm petrels, which are secure in their nest holes. But the shearwaters are sailing round us, unseen, but calling quite clearly there. 
they, they can travel, they're great distance travellers. I mean, some of the furthest travel birds, and also some of the longest lived. I mean, there's records of Manx Shearwaters, the birds, certainly now on the Welsh coast, um, birds over 50, 55 years of age that have been back to the same nest site. And they, the birds that are above us now in the sky, in the beginning of July, um, will have come from and will return to the coast, coastal waters of South America, um, where they'll winter, and then come back to Skellig Michael year after year. Find this tiny rock in the middle of the Atlantic, and then migrate right across the North Atlantic, down past the equator, through the tropics, and down to the coast of South America, the east coast of South America. Guess these birds are circling far and wide above us and around us and off out to see them back and I think they're calling and trying to tune in to the response of their mate, which is the shearwaters nest in, in burrows, much more significant burrows than the storm petrels. So in the grassy banks behind us and on the steep slopes, either side of the, the stairway, and somewhere inside, maybe an old puffin burrow or something a metre, a metre deep, at the end of that burrow there'll be a, another adult shearwater with a single, incubating a single egg, listening out for the sound that's above us at the moment. And it may have been in that hole for several days or many days without a meal, so it'll be a much anticipated, <laughs> even though it's a strange call to us, it'll be very welcome to that shearwater in a burrow. It's a sound to unsettle even someone whose vision of the world encompasses sat-navs and predator drones. What must it have done to a 5th century monk trying to get some kip? Well, the Shearwaters clearly won that battle, partying on centuries after their neighbours, the monks, have moved on. But the Manx Shearwaters had their fans too, like the writer Michael Kirby, who encoded their calls into Irish and English. He wrote about the Shearwater call as a repetition of the expression, it was your fault, it was your fault. While Irish speakers tended to hear, don't do it, or Nordene, Nordene, or to give it that Manx Shearwater bloss, Nordene, Nordene. As recording techniques go, the encoding into syllables was simple but effective, carrying the sound of the birds into heads far from the island, in space and time. Which is what our own recordings are for, too, to keep ajar a door into the past, back to a time when the range of the inexplicable was somehow bigger and smaller. After all, when God was the final answer to all questions, as it was for a monk huddled in his darkened stone cell, all mystery was only temporary. But in one way at least, in sound, we can join the monks in the darkness at the top of the stairs, find a stone perch of our own, and listen to Skellig's calling. 